During the 1960s, former president of the Royal Hibernian Academy, Stephen McKenna, was studying at the Slade School of Fine Art, an environment that helped him champion modernism and abstraction. The British-born visual artist went on to live in various European countries, including Italy and Germany, before settling in County Carlow, where he lived up until his death in 2017. Now a new exhibition at the Carolyn Gallery celebrates with rarely seen early work by the artist known for his postmodern and figurative work painting Stephen McKenna. The 60s opens this Friday, November the 25th, runs until January the 14th. And to give us a flavour of what's on show, we're joined by a lecturer in visual culture at the National College of Art and Design, Declan Long. Um, first of all, maybe you give us a sense of who Stephen McKenna is and how important he was, Declan. Well, he was uh, a British artist. He um, had... Uh, uh, Irish strong Irish connections. Um, I have a, maybe it's the World Cup has put it in my head that he's like t- Tony Cascarino in that he was English. He but a great career in Europe and then made a big impact for Ireland in the 1990s. You know, so, <laughs> but but he was also somebody whose work absorbed tr- traditions of surrealism, abstraction, all of these different things. Um, he was a very skilled painter, classicist in lots of ways. But there's lots of moments where the work changes, evolves, and in these 60s works, we can see him trying to find himself, trying to work out who he is. So he was capable of more than just jumping up in and getting the high ball coming well, in. Right, exactly. He was quite versatile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. To move away from the football analogy, Fed, then let us take a look at some of the work in the exhibition. We'll tweet the paintings as we talk about them at RTE Arena if you want to see them. The first one we're looking at, uh, Declan, is called Trinity 1964. What strikes me... Um, First of all, maybe you describe what, what we're looking at here. Quite an abstract image for sure. We have the basics of abstraction in some ways. We have, you know, line, colour, shape. Mm. You know, an artist, a young artist, a guy in his early 20s here really working out, you know, how to engage with abstraction. And this is, you know, painting onto unprimed canvas. So this is just really working with the 2D possibilities of painting. And yet we have these variations in forms, the Trinity, you know, and Trinities appear at different you know, different ways throughout the rest uh, of his are we work. Three, are there three kind of basic images yeah, here? There's yeah, there's three sort of almost kind of bulb-like forms mm. that, you know, they could be flowers or they could be cells if we were to read them in that way. But they're little circles um, with shapes in them with maybe stalks um, and each, you know, moves yeah. in a different way on the canvas. Um, the colour is very striking in that. But if we move on to look at a second image, you can you can talk about his use of colour because it, it really is striking across all the images we're looking at, but particularly in these first two. The second one that I'm going to tweet now on that RTE arena is untitled. Uh, from a year later than Trinity, actually, 1965. Uh, triangular kind of forms at play here, Declan, for sure. But again, the the colours are really yeah, they're striking. really pinging. It's really hmm. worth saying that actually these a lot of these works look like they could have been made yesterday, yeah. even though they're sixty odd years old. And hmm. that um, here the space starts to open out. Like there's suggestions of what will come in his work. We get the sky kind of contained within a, a rectangle. Uh, the rectangular shape at the bottom of the painting, um, but we get these kite-like forms. So there's abstraction there in so far as we have shapes and colours and so on within a composition, but we have a suggestion of the outside world. So we're starting to see, you know, the light get in. We're starting to see him look out beyond the limitations of abstraction in a, in a really beautifully vivid little painting. Yeah, because uh, as we move on to a third image, again, an untitled image from 1967 this time, so just two years after the, the second image, that we looked at there, we're, we're heading to a, some, towards something that has 
a little bit more of a figurative aspect to it, it strikes me, in this particular painting. Would you describe it? Well, we have something that might be a map, yeah. like a map or a landscape. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a big, wide open space with structures which are, you know, on solid ground, perhaps, and structures which might be more like little islands. And there's things like that are castle-like. They float in a, a large kind of yellowy space that's, you know, mottled and complicated as a, as a painted surface. And, and how, I'm looking at the size here um, 59.4 by 89.4 images so what do we do that, it's, that's, a, it's that's a pretty big. large piece of work you know you're standing in front five of five foot thing. by over six foot yeah, yeah. and you, can't, you contemplate this landscape hmm. like it is a large map and his work did go on to paint cities and cityscapes and landscapes of, of different and, and kinds. That, that move from the first two paintings into this third one certainly suggests this move towards a more figurative type. What what moved him away from abstraction, do you think? Was it the... F- it was, I suppose, kind of personal inclinations. Mm. He didn't like that, the, you know, the kind of um, expectations of the, the, the time he moved off to Germany eventually at the end of the 1960s and they, they you know, there he was able to, you know get more appreciation for a more figurative, more representational style. His influences in lots of ways were were older forms of painting than were there in modernism, but also things through surrealism like De Chirico um, and that kind of work. I, the raincoat, uh, which I'll tweet now, uh, a painting from 1968, were in real figurative yeah. areas. Although, interestingly, while we we're seeing a scientist, we don't see the face of the scientist. No. We see just the coat. I mean, well, it, I'm it, presuming it's a scientist. It, it, it's sort of it's like a Mac rather yeah. than a lab coat, you yeah. know. And we see that it's the spliced, you know, almost like movie strip, um, you know, top mm. and bottom cut off. But that's not quite it because out of one side we have this spill of some something like green paint or sewage. Yeah. Um, at the bottom, there's a little framed image of two other nude bodies um, in an encounter. In the background, it opens out to um, uh, another landscape, in, you know, with another strange perspective. It's a pretty wild painting. Mm. Very 1960s, I think. You know, we, we he wasn't actually interested in pop, um, but you can see that there's a the 1960s yeah. are pressing in in, in stylistically. Yeah, and I, I, I saw a science lab in that for some reason. But if I look at the final image we have, uh, again, from 1968, I see a kind of, there's a sense of theatre in this in that we have a, a square, what could be a door in a house, but it could equally yeah. be the, the arch, the proscenium arch in a, in a theatre. Absolutely. There's lots of sort of frames within frames and the bodies that we mm. see together in that image are, some are solid, some seem like they're shadows or some seem to mirror other bodies. Bodies. Um, there's lots of, of, you know, figures here, and it's an artist committed to making certain kinds of figurative work, but also questioning what it would mean to do that at that time. And this, the, the this particular exhibition takes us just up to the end of the 1960s. That's why it's called yeah. the 60s. Um, Absolutely. Does, is there big develop? Are there big developments after that? In that, yeah, beyond that, then yeah, his work, you know, starts t- to look much more at classical subjects, and then later, it, you know, we get these very large, very beautiful mm. paintings of, of cities. Uh, is there a things. sense that the Carolyn might give us other decades? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we will. There was a, a, a sort of retrospective in 2017 at Visual Carlo, um, just a, that Steve McKenna mm. put himself himself put together just before he died. But maybe we'll see others um, yeah. over the next few years. Well, the current one is called Stephen McKenna's The Sixties. It opens at the Carolyn Gallery this Friday, November the twenty fifth. Run through runs through until January the fourteenth, and the exhibition will showcase these rarely seen works from Stephen McKenna. Thanks to Declan Long, uh, visual culture lecturer at the National College of Art and Design, for coming into us this evening. And that. 
In October of 2017, the following headline appeared across the front page of the New York Times. Harvey Weinstein paid off sexual harassment accusers for decades. The investigation by journalists Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey sent shockwaves through the enter- entertainment industry and led to consequences far beyond. Their work exposed the conduct of Weinstein, who was at the time one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood. He was convicted and sentenced for crimes including rape and sexual assault in New York earlier this year year and he is now on trial in Los Angeles for multiple charges of rape and sexual assault. She Said is based on the book written by Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor about their investigation. They are played by Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan in Maria Schrader's feature film about the story which is also called She Said. One of the most important figures in this story is Irish woman Laura Madden who spoke on the record to the New York Times about Weinstein's assault on her in the 1990s when she worked for Miramax. Laura is played by actor Jennifer Ely in the film. Before we hear Jennifer Ely in conversation with my arena colleague Sinead Egan, let's hear from Laura Madden herself, who spoke to Ryan Tuberty on The Late Late Show in September of 2019 about her decision to go on the record with her story. You were going on the record. Mm -hmm. You were frank about it. And... uh, The rest kind of followed. Do you know, that's how important it was. They needed people to say, I will do this regardless. Were you ever worried that the might of the Weinstein emperor will come down I, upon you? Absolutely, yeah, I, I was thought frightened. You would be, yeah. And that's why I didn't want to go on the what record. What were you frightened of, Laura? Well, I thought I would be sued. Or mm. um, I also was frightened of reframing my whole career publicly. Yes. Um, you know, I was frightened of being judged. I was frightened of what... A, how the, I would be, you know, people would react to it. To it. Yes. But um, you must have been heartened. But the journalist said to me, you know, for every negative comment you will get, you'll get twenty yeah. positive ones, and you were know, they people right? will. Yes, they were. Basically, people will support you and uh, you know admire you for coming forward, and you can change. You can't change what happened to you, but you can maybe help change something happening in the future to somebody else. Right. What is it exactly that we're looking at here? We're looking at extreme sexual harassment in the workplace. These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings with a producer, an employer. They were hopeful. They were expecting a serious conversation about their work or a possible project. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. They claim assault and rape. If that can happen to Hollywood actresses, who else is it happening to? Jennifer, you read Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor's book, She Said, when it was published. Um, So you knew the story. What did you feel when you read the script? Well, oh, God, I... Honestly, when my agent called and told me about this, um, I said, of course, I'm going to do this, and now I will read the script, which I don't think is something that I've ever said before about anything. Uh, So when I read the script... One of the things I felt, of course, was relief <laughs> that it is yeah. not only good, but it is, I think, really an extraordinary piece of work. Um, it is so gripping and nuanced and just powerful. Uh, I don't think it's, it has, it, it's not self-congratulatory. It is um, just, it has a feeling of uh, just real power and nuance and um, so I was I was thrilled when I read the script. 
Um, you're playing Laura Madden, who was an Irish woman, uh, who was pivotal to this story. Um, how did it feel to play a real person with such a harrowing story? I mean, how does that impact on your work as an actor? Well, I think any time you get to play somebody who is written in a script, regardless of whether they're a real human being who's walking around out there that you have enormous respect and gratitude for, when you get to play somebody or attempt to play somebody who is who's written so multi-dimensional and, um, and, and so powerfully written, uh, it's just, it's a... It's a joy and a privilege. I can understand that. Um, the quiet scenes with Laura and her daughters and her family are so moving. Um, they really emphasise the fact that Laura, by the stage that she becomes involved in the New York Times story, has chosen a life away from movies and it shows how much she risked. Yes, I agree. I think that um, where uh, Maria, our director, and Rebecca, the screenwriter, and the team working with them, where they chose to um, to put the lens of narrative uh, is really powerful. And th I think they made some very interesting choices. I think you get such a sense of Laura's life. You get a sense of, I think, everybody's lives, of Jody and Megan's as well, um, outside the workplace. Uh, but I think, yes, I think it, they managed to tell so much about Laura Madden's character in this film um, in very, very short little moments. Um, none of the sexual assaults are depicted on screen. It's all witness testimony. The, the film really trusts the power of words. Um, with that in mind, how did you approach filming that pivotal scene with Zoe Kazan where Laura describes her own experience with Harvey Weinstein? I think I had to put aside um, the, the weight of responsibility I felt um, to uh, attempt to honor Laura. So I had to put that aside and just um, let the words, I think you're right. I think the power of words is so much what this film is about the power of words and the, the power of um, communication, of, of conversation uh, leading to transparency. And, um, and so the power of the words, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautifully written scene, it really is. How do you feel about it now? I feel like it dictated a certain direction my life took but I just felt that it was this huge error of judgment that sort of marked me and all my decisions. And I felt such shame that I let him do that. Did he think that he had done the same to other girls? I thought that he must have tried it, but They'd all, they'd all said no. It was like he took my voice that day. Just when I was about to start finding it. What's, what really stayed with me um, from that scene, Jennifer, was what Laura says about the long-term impact that it had on her life 
and on her career and how the change in her after this, the assault was so profound, so complete. I mean, it's just so sad. It's so sad. I mean, the, the, the fact that, that there are people in the world, male or female or whatever, who are in a powerful position and feel that they can just take something they want from someone or coerce them or put them in a position where they feel they don't have a choice and or they don't have a choice um, and then walk away and go on with their lives and the victims of that moment are then the survivors who who have to move forward and and live their lives it's extraordinary the the level of selfishness and um, the abuse of power is just obscene and it's it's so well depicted in the film um, so this is a female story. It's directed by a woman. It's written by a woman. It, the central roles are all women. It's about female journalism covering the stories of female survivors, which is all quite something. Um, what impact did that have on your experience of working on this film? Was it unusual? I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of female directors now and um, a few female DPs. This film was special and unusual just I think because of the subject matter I think um, because I was playing somebody who was so respected and um, cherished by uh, the storytellers involved uh, it really felt like such a an intimate um, safe uh, environment uh, the, the film the camera was very unobtrusive it it really just it felt very, very real and um, very unobserved. It led one to not want to be performative, which is, is always great because you sort of have to fight that. It's striking that the people in the film, the journalists and the survivors, are they're very three-dimensional. We know we see their lives beyond the narrative scope of the plot. We see the messiness of their lives, which really makes the story so so real and so relatable. How important do you think that was in getting the story across? I think it was. I think it was vital. I think that that how nuanced and three-dimensional everyone is 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 one of my favorite things about this film. Um, how you see. You really feel like you feel the blood under people's skin, and I think all the characters, every character who walks onto the screen. Um, do you think it's possible now, you know, five years on from when that story was published, to quantify the legacy of that story in the industry? I think we can um, we can observe the changes that have been made and how far we've come, and be aware that we still have to be vigilant. In all works of life, I mean, I don't think just um, in my industry. I think it's, I think it's been rife since the beginning of humans, probably. Are we talking solely corporate misuse of power? No, we're talking all workplaces where sexual harassment might happen. Also, let's look for the enablers. Fox kept O'Reilly on for quite some time after our story broke. And for decades before that. The network only ousted him when the advertisers jumped ship. Let's interrogate the whole system. Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? Patricia Clarkson there as New York Times journalist Rebecca Corbett. Zoe Kazan was also in that scene as investigative reporter Jodie Cantor in a scene from She Said. Before that, we heard Jennifer Ely talking about her role as Laura Madden in She Said. The film goes on general release in cinemas this weekend and we'll be reviewing it on Thursday night's programme. 
Elmer Bernstein was one of the greatest film composers of the 20th centuries with 20th century with credits ranging from Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments in 1956 to Kip Fear in 1991. Many of his instantly recognisable compositions will evoke feelings of joy, feelings of sadness, nostalgia even for millions of film fans all over the world. Think of the theme from The Great Escape in 1956 or The Magnificent Seven in 1960. Add in the likes of Ghostbusters, True Grit, and my foot and you get quite a legacy which will be celebrated on Friday December the 9th at the National Concert Hall in Dublin in an evening which will mark the centenary of the great man's birth in New York City in 1922. The concert will see Elmer Bernstein's son Peter conducting the National Symphony Orchestra in a programme that includes many of the great scores I've just mentioned. I'll be speaking to Peter in a moment about his memories of his father and the range of his father's work and the extraordinary talent that brought us Melodies like this. The incredible and evocative score there from the 1960 John Sturgis film The Magnificent Seven, a score composed by Hollywood legend Elmer Bernstein, whose legacy will be celebrated on December the 9th at the National Concert Hall with the National Symphony Orchestra conducted by the son of the great composer and my guest this evening on Arena, Peter Bernstein, who joins us now from Los Angeles. Peter, I've been listening to your father's music for the last couple of days. The range is is quite extraordinary. I mean, we just heard hugely dynamic uh, music from the Magnificent Seven there you, you know you have stuff like that uh, kind of sleazy jazzy big band sound of the sweet smell of success the very playful Ghostbusters and very evocative um, music at times as well and something like My Left Foot and we'll come to the story of that um, shortly but putting that variety to the one side did your father have a particular approach or did it kind of depend on, on on the movie? Oh, it it definitely depended on the movie. He always felt himself as composing in service of the drama that was given, or comedy or whatever it was that was given him. He just went with whatever he felt. You know, he was very um, intuitive in that way and obviously versatile and skilled. Uh, I might add that uh, being versatile is a very good way to survive in Hollywood over the long haul, which he definitely did. 
Well, well, given that he, you know, there is such a variety of, of films then that he has composed for, how did he go about that? Obviously, you know, he, he, he saw the film. I don't know if he went to on, on set for films. Did he watch the film after it had been made, but the film, the music hadn't been added in? What was that, the nuts and bolts of what he did? How did he go about that? Well, things changed over the years as Hollywood changed. But in the beginning, he might be involved in a film early on, go to readings of the script, be on the set, just sort of associate himself with the production and absorb as much as he could. And then once he got an edit to look at, he would look at it over and over and over again, waiting for, as he said, waiting for something to happen, which was simply an internal light, you know, that Mm. would go on that would say, here's how it's going to work. Here's what you're doing. Here's what the music is supposed to do. And then he would start composing. And what was he like when he was waiting for that internal light going on? Was it, you know, now be quiet. Dad's waiting for the light to be turned on. I want no noise (laughs) while he's waiting for the inspiration to drop. Or, you know, was there an intensity around the house where you're going around, you know, on tiptoes trying to be quiet to not disturb things? Or how did that work? Never, (laughs) never. Such intensity as there was, you know, was not apparent. Although I I do know as an adult, people have told me that he could be miserable waiting for that something to happen. But again, he was very good at what he did and he usually didn't have to wait long except in specific cases. You know, he was very workmanlike. There was very little drama within the household. Mm. But I presume when when the light did turn on, there must have been some exuberance, some kind of joy with perhaps, did he work very separate within the house? Did he go off into a little part of the house where nobody would come near him and then come out of his den going, yes, Eureka, it's here. The inspiration has arrived. Listen to this. <laughs> well, not not quite like that. But yes, we were, he would play things occasionally in the morning after he was a worker in the early days. And many times I fell asleep listening to him several days down the hall in his office studio at the end of the house. And in, sometimes in the morning he would play things for fun, just not, not to ask mm. our opinions so much as just to have fun doing it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I doubt if you slept through this particular composition, or at least maybe he was playing on the piano and it wasn't quite as noisy as this, but Cecil B. DeMille never looked for the small, let us be honest, and let's listen to a little bit of the opening section of The Ten Commandments.
Yes, nothing small at all in that uh, music from the Ten Commandments, the music of Elmer Bernstein. And speaking with me this evening is Elmer Bernstein's son, Peter, who will be conducting the National Symphony Orchestra on Friday the 9th of December with a concert featuring uh, his father's music. It, it is quite big, the, the Ten Commandments, Peter. I, you know, I think you were only five or six at the time that your father was working on that film. What are your first memories of actually being aware of the size of that score? the size of the orchestra that was involved? My first memory of the score really is just seeing the the record lying around the house. I had no idea what it was. I was young. It didn't really become something that I thought about until many years later when they would show it on television because I never saw it in a theater that I know of. I was young, as you said. Mm. It was much later. I would also like to add, as far as the size of the orchestra goes, He never used really large orchestras, but he could write really big sounding music for it. That's another, you know, comment on on skill and versatility. Absolutely. That's very interesting that you say that, because, I mean, when I think so much of in in terms of your father's music, yes, I know there are quiet sections and even within the, the, the Ten Commandments as well, you know, there are, I suppose, slightly more. All inspiring type of music is in there as well. But the, the fact that he used a, a small orchestra, was this just, you know, as you say, good craftsmanship and a good way of, of making yourself very employable? I suppose if you're offering a small orchestra <laughs> and a big sound, that's a good way to get, to get a job. I don't think he worried so much about the size of the orchestra in terms of working. I would say that the Ten Commandments was played by an orchestra that was... Uh, in the employ of the studio at that time, as studios did in those years. They had orchestras that, you know, played their music and the size of the orchestra was the size you were writing for. It was only later, after that system changed and everybody was independent, that the sizes of orchestras could vary a whole lot. And he took great advantage of that. Your father was also very active in promoting the art of film music. I guess in the early days, was there a sense that, you know, there was it was a job of work to be done. Come in, do what you have to do. I want 45 seconds here, sort it out and, and get out of the way, please. Was it, was it looked down on in some ways, film composing in the early days, do you think? Well, he certainly thought it was. You know, again, I was a little young, but uh, yeah, film composing was definitely a second class art form in orchestral world. And in some ways, I think that was because it wasn't promoted as such. There were so few soundtrack albums released, very little recognition. Again, composers are employed by specific studios and constrained by what the studios did. So the film scores that are that in those days were remembered from, you know, a few years ago, before or decade before were very rare. And and can you see a moment when that changed? It may or may not have been linked into your father's music. Was there a time when the attitude to music and films, when it, it flipped into a new place? Well, yes. And well, let me start by saying that my father was very uh, instrumental in that because he founded a record club, a subscription club, where he himself paid for re-recording classic film scores and then sent the records to his subscribers. It was the first of its kind, I believe. There were a few recordings of action film music and comedy film music uh, or the film music of so-and-so that were available at the time, but he treated it much more as an art form and less of 
and entertainment. And that changed a lot. But also, music changed a lot. At the end of the 60s uh, and into the 70s, you had much more popular music appearing in films. Later in the 70s, you had Star Wars. You had a great big orchestral dynamic score that of a type that hadn't been used in a few years in Hollywood. There was a film called Shaft, which had a popular music-based score that was extremely successful. It had like, you know, tambourines and wah-wah guitars and all the sounds of the early 70s. And for a period of time, that's all studios wanted. And an orchestral symphonic style score was very much out of favor for, oh, I don't know, mm. five, six, seven years. And suddenly Star Wars happened and everything changed again. Hollywood, that, that's how it works. Let's have a listen to, uh, well, actually, before we listen to it, tell me a little bit about your father's connection to, to this country, because uh, My Left Foot and the music for My Left Foot is so evocative at different points during the film. How did that even come about? I mean, your father was a huge uh, film music star at this point in his in his career, and My Left Foot at the time was a very small budget film from a, a little-known Jim Sheridan, <laughs> known to us, but not, maybe not known elsewhere. Well, uh, my father was friends with Noel Pearson, the producer, very good friends. And they met somewhere in the early 70s, and I don't know exactly when, uh, on a film where Noel represented a singer that had done a song in this film. And they just became friends. Simple as that. And in discovering the friendship, my father also discovered Ireland and just fell in love. And his bookshelves became filled with books about Irish history, Irish music, Irish stories. And he made a promise to Noel. He said, uh, if you can ever get a film produced, I'll score it for free. At the time, my father was just finishing a run of comedy films, of which Ghostbusters was the most successful. But there were many. And he was sick and tired of comedies and wanted to get out of it. But he couldn't. His friendship with Noel and writing the score for My Left Foot for free freed him from comedies because it was so successful. It was a great moment in his career. Well, and that's amazing. And he agreed to do it for nothing. I presume he got something subsequent when the success of the film kicked in. Well, maybe that that change in direction of his career was the was the reward. Let's have a listen to a little section from a beautiful, beautifully moving section of of the score. This a, a section called "Love Spoken." And I, I'll ask you about the instrument that we hear afterwards because it's it's a very unusual sound. There's there's a violin and there's a harp in there, which is hardly su- surprising in terms of an Irish film. But it's the other instrument that I want. People people to hear first and then you can tell me about it afterwards Peter
Absolutely beautiful music there from My Left Foot, composed by Elmer Bernstein and his son Peter, speaking with me on the programme this evening. It's it's so evocative, that particular tune. Now, I said the harp beforehand, I said the violin beforehand, but then there's that instrument that sounds like a theremin to me, but I believe it's not quite a theremin. What exactly was the, the instrument that we heard, like, kind of like a glass organ as well, Peter? That instrument is an owned Martineau, which literally translates to Wave of Martineau, who is the inventor, I believe. And it's it's like a theremin. It makes that same sound, but it's much more controllable in its pitch and expression. It's an incredibly expressive instrument, and he used it to great effect. And when it comes to performing that type of score then in, in concerts, is it is it difficult to find a player of the Ode to Martineau? <laughs> it is indeed. Sometimes you can use one and sometimes you cannot. It simply depends on where you are and and who's nearby. But it's a sound that's easily reproduced, so that's not a problem. But it is uh, it is a yeah. lovely sound and uh, it was a interesting period of, your, of his career when he used it. By the way, you talk about the connection to, to Ireland. Your father composed or arranged a version of are on the vein, the Irish, the Irish national anthem. I, I don't think I've ever heard that. Have Have we heard this piece previous to this? I believe when we perform it, it will be the first time. And was there something about the Irish national anthem? Was he an anthem freak? What What was it about are on the vein that attracted your father? Do you know? He was an anthem freak, actually. He would tell me about, oh, I like this anthem and this one's interesting. And I think because he felt the way he did about Ireland, he he had to do an arrangement of the national anthem. It was unavoidable. <laughs> and he, he just did it because he was interested in it. And in fact, my, my understanding is that the performance of Aaron the Vane, which will open the concert on the 9th of December, will be, in fact, the world premiere. So that's a, that's a real treat uh, to, to, to look forward yes, to. Yes, I, I saw the original paper. I don't know that it was, there were never any parts for instruments taken from it. So yes, this will be the first time. The other thing that struck me when listening to that music from my left foot, I, I mentioned the instrumentation of the, the harp and the violin, hardly uh, surprising in terms of a, a piece of music connected with Ireland. But the melody that's played on the violin there, I would even hazard to say, has a touch more perhaps of your father's um, own heritage, his own Eastern European heritage uh, within that tune. Would you agree with me? Um, yeah, yeah, I would. He was who he was. He came from where he came from, although I wouldn't say it was something that consciously happened. Mm. It's, you know, who he was, who he came from, where he came from, what film music was like and what it had evolved to. He was a mixture of a lot of things coming, you know, being a first generation American. His parents were Eastern Europe, Ukrainian, we'd call them now. Mm. And he absorbed a lot of things in his youth. He was trained as a concert pianist. He studied music extensively. He spent time in Europe as a child. And uh, he was uh, not immune to American popular music of the time either, big band music. But when, when you think of, you know, you, you mentioned your father was born. You, you, obviously, Ukrainian is what we would say now. The Sherman brothers, the great Disney composer, sons of Al Sherman, born in <coughs> Kiev as well in, in Ukraine. George Gershwin's family originated in Odessa in Ukraine. How, how do you reflect Indeed. on that Eastern European heritage in your own life and in your own music and particularly in the light of what's happening in that part of the world today? Well, it's complicated, right? I have 
not that I know who they are, but I certainly have second and third cousins there right now. And, you know, if my grandparents, well, great grandparents, actually, had not left with my grandparents in tow, we'd all be there right now. You know, it's a very thin line, right? It's an amazing heritage that all of this music came from that one place. It's kind of shocking, actually, when you think about it. And the kind of the repeated history is quite shocking as well. It's a it's a very similar thing, I suppose, that 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 sent your great grandparents away from that part of the world, as is happening to lots of people in that area this very day. Well, they were escaping a different kind of oppression, anti-Semitism, but oppression is oppression. That's what they were fortunate enough to get out of. And I'm, I have to say, I'm very gratified that there is some recognition lately that these people actually did come from there. There was never any talk of that before, and now there is. And I, I, I'm very sad for the reason, but I'm glad that the recognition is happening. You, you mentioned earlier, Peter, about how your father found, kind of found himself stuck in a comedy groove for a period of time. <laughs> let, us, let us remind ourselves on a much lighter note of part of that uh, comedy groove and the film Ghostbusters. Yeah, certainly, certainly a real sense of fun in that uh, main title theme from Ghostbusters, the music of Elmer Bernstein, speaking this evening with his son, Peter Bernstein, ahead of the concert of Elmer Bernstein's music at the National Concert Hall on Friday the 9th of, of December. It, it's hard to think that he, why you would want to get away from that great sense of fun, Peter. Does, is it a bit like having too much candy? Eventually, eventually you just need some decent food. You can't keep going on sugar. There were several different reasons. Too much sugar is one of them. But the whole comedy era in his career happened because of a very specific happy accident. In the early 70s, he led a strike against the major studios of the old Composers Guild for greater rights to their music to have it released as soundtracks, just like he did with the record club that I mentioned earlier. And it cost him a lot of his career because the studios were not very happy with him for a while. Uh, He wasn't doing the big pictures that he was doing in the 60s. However, in 1977, he got a call regarding a little-known, low-budget, nobody-was-going-to-care-about comedy that just happened to be directed by a friend of mine from school when we were teenagers. And this friend of mine from school was a movie nut and was very keen on meeting my father when we were kids. I didn't care. He was just my dad, right? This was a Universal movie. Universal told my friend that Elmer Bernstein wouldn't be interested in your film. But of course he was because he knew him and he thought it was great to be directing a movie. I mean, to be scoring a movie that was directed by a friend of mine. And the movie turned out to be Animal House. And the director was John Landis, who was my high school friend. And the success of that movie launched John's career the producer, Ivan Reitman, and launched my father into comedies. 
And the success of that score and of Ivan and John led to a series of movies they directed or produced. Mm. And that notoriety brought other comedies to him. And he did this for, my God, from 1977 to about 87, 10 years of it. And he was just tired of it. He wanted to get back to more serious composition, as he would have put it, even though he applied himself completely to every score he wrote. He was just tired of comedies by that time. You mentioned there the fact that he was in trouble with the studios. Hardly the first time that that happened. Your your father was also very active in and around the 1950s, I suppose, and and here famous or infamous for the dreadful uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, a time referred to as the McCarthy era. Your father fell foul of that committee as well? He did. He was uh, very involved in in very left-wing post-war theater activities in New York City. He wrote a song mocking the FBI, which was never going to go over well, and it was performed. Uh, The FBI had a file on him, which I have actually seen, full of, let's say, fantasies about what he was doing. You know, he was supported things like organized labor, integrated baseball, and things which were kind of radical for the day, which we now take for granted. But it brought him to the attention of the FBI, and nobody cared when he came out here and started composing for motion pictures until he got a little successful. Then, suddenly, he couldn't find work. And that lasted for a better part of two years. He had uh, jobs as a pianist for uh, the dancing in the film Oklahoma. He sort of a jack law musical trades, helping on another film organize songs for someone who was a songwriter but not very musical, things like that. By a happy accident, he was hired to write some incidental music, not the score, but incidental music for dancers and on-camera orchestras for Ten Commandments. Which brings us full circle, I suppose, in some ways, back back to where where we were at the start of our at the start of our chat this evening. And I guess I can't talk about your father without mentioning the Great Escape because the film itself and that theme tune. You were you were a little bit older, I suppose, at the at the time of this film coming out. You were uh, heading towards your teenage years uh, at this point. Have you memories of the Great Escape, or indeed the first time that you? heard it as much as saw it, that film. I absolutely do. Well, I I was, the first recording session I remember was actually The Magnificent Seven in 1960. But The Great Escape, yes, I remember being at those recording sessions and being quite, uh, what's the word, impressed with the sounds. (laughs) I I remember it to this day, thinking, oh, that's great. I really like that. And, you know, watching him do it and sort of absorbing it. It was it was really fun, and then being old enough to see the movie as well and and see the finished product. Yeah, and and we'll finish up by listening to a little bit, of course, from the Great Escape. Um, absolutely wonderful to speak with you this evening, Peter. Thanks so much for being with us on the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the concert. And I'll give people full details of that concert, but let's finish up with a little bit of the Great Escape, the music of Elmer Bernstein.
off he goes again, Elmer Bernstein, and that incredible theme to The Great Escape. Once again, my thanks to Peter Bernstein, who will be conducting a concert of music composed by his father, Elmer, with the National Symphony Orchestra, that concert on December the 9th. It will celebrate 100 years since the birth of Elmer Bernstein. The programme will include music from The Great Escape, as we've just heard, The Magnificent Seven, My Left Foot, True Grit, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Ten Commandments, and many more movie classics. Full details on nch.ie.